On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, it's Erin Ryan. And Alyssa Mastromonaco here. And today we are so excited to share with you an incredible new podcast from Crooked Media. It's called Work Appropriate, a show about all the shit and humor of modern day work culture. It's hosted by Anne Helen Peterson, an award-winning author. You know, the woman who blew the whistle on burnout and the myth of having it all. Yeah, well, that's Anne. In Work Appropriate, Anne turns her attention to the wild world of work. Every episode features Anne in conversation with the smartest people she knows as they dish out humorous but practical workplace advice for a range of listener questions like, how do I get my manager to stop texting me after hours? To, what do I do when my company thinks our toxic culture can be fixed with Taco Tuesdays? We have a preview of episode two to share with you in which Anne and New York Times writer Jessica Gross talk about how to make work less hostile to parents. Definitely a must listen. While you're listening, be sure to subscribe to Crooked Media's Work Appropriate wherever you get your podcast. And now, here's Work Appropriate. Hi, everyone. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and this is Work Appropriate. I think I have spent the last 20 years of my adult life, essentially since I graduated from college and became a nanny, gradually realizing just how hostile workplaces are to parents. I mean, all of society is pretty hostile towards parents. I think parents understand this, even if they don't necessarily know how to articulate it. But workplace culture in particular is hostile, and especially towards people who are the primary caregivers in their family, which is oftentimes mothers. Hostile sounds like kind of an intense word, and I get that, but I don't think I have a better word to describe the situation because the workplace oftentimes assumes that we are working bodies without any needs outside of what we do every day in the workplace. And that's complicated no matter your situation, but it's extra complicated when you have people, small people, older people, people with special needs in whatever way depending on you. And so I think it's a lot harder for working parents to try to invisibilize the needs of those other people on an everyday basis. Whenever I talk about the workplace, I also get a lot of questions about motherhood, even when I'm not explicitly asking about parents in the workplace. And so to answer these questions today, I wanted to turn to one of the people that I always read, when I'm trying to understand the current situation when it comes to parenthood just generally, but also working parents. My name is Jessica Gross. I am an opinion writer at the New York Times. I write a newsletter that focuses on parenting and family in the United States. Uh, I have a book coming out in December, on December 6th, called Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. And I'm also a working mom of two kids who are now... Almost 10 and 6. Somehow I have an almost 10-year-old, which is delightful and horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that you have a pretty compelling story in terms of your history as a working parent. Can you tell the abbreviated version of that? Absolutely. So even though I always prided myself on not being the kind of chump that listens to platitudes from Facebook executives. I absolutely was taken in by the talk around Lean In. And it was before it was even a book. It was just a TED Talk. It was my late 20s. It was a time where I felt like I was really finally confident in my work and I knew where I wanted to go with it. And so I had taken a new job. I realized I was pregnant on my second day of that new job. I proceeded to get hyperemesis, which is when you throw up so much that you lose, I think the technical definition is 5% of your body weight. So I was throwing up minimum five times a day, usually more. I could not hold down any food. Um, I'd also gone off antidepressants to conceive. And so I was incredibly anxious and depressed. And so I was trying to do this new job, which I sucked at because I just couldn't function. I mean, it's like having a horrible stomach virus, except for weeks at a time. Um, And I ended up quitting that job. And it was humiliating And I'm still like, it's hard for me to talk about now. And I have to get over that because I'm probably going to be talking about it a lot more. But um, I still find it totally embarrassing, which is, you know, it's not my fault. There's nothing I could have done to prevent Mm -hmm. an illness, which is what it is. But there was always this sort of idea that I think is very deep seated that you're totally responsible. And anytime that you can't be the ideal worker, um, that's somehow your fault. And so I quit this job. Um, I spent many months just in bed. Uh, And then when my older daughter was born and she was super healthy, which was great, and I felt so much better. I mean, that's typical with folks who have um, extreme vomiting that (laughs) the baby- Once you stop extreme vomiting, you feel better. Yeah, well, once the baby is born, you feel fine. I was like, oh my God, I feel human again. Um, And so, you know, I was freelance for a couple years, um, but I just couldn't make enough money to make that work when we wanted to have a second kid. So I went back to a staff job and then so have been balancing a typical nine to five or sometimes, you know, eight to six- job uh, with one and then now two kids and also through a pandemic, which, you know, a real curveball that was a roughie for uh, everybody. <laughs> yeah. And you wrote a book, like you figured that how to, how to do that. I, I did mean, figure as, out how to do that. Um, yeah. And again, I want to make it clear, like that sort of the origin story or the beginning of my motherhood. I mean, it was a complete act of privilege that I could quit my job um, because we were on my husband's health insurance. And I really don't know what I would have done had I been a single parent or had my spouse had been the one who was freelance and we had health insurance through me. Um, I don't know what I would have done. I guess suffered through it, gotten fired. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we're like, you know, this is the thing that people always say about parenting just generally is like you make it work. And in our society, there are ways that people would make it work. Like you would go on Cobra, like you would go on maybe short term disability somehow, you know, like there's all these different things. None of them are ideal, though. None of them are like the way that you if you could have said, how do I want my first experience as a parenthood to go? 
would they be like that, you know? No, and I think, like, what is underlying and under-discussed is, like, let's say all of that had happened and we had to go on COBRA and we figured it out. The sort of cumulative stress of those situations and the fear that it's all going to fall apart um, Mm -hmm. with any false step is it weighs on you year after year. Um, And I think that sort of stressor, it can't even be quantified. I don't know how you would begin to quantify it, but it's something that whenever I talk to parents who don't live in the United States and try to explain some of the pretzels that we put ourselves in to try to make it work, they're just both confused, mystified, horrified. Like they don't even understand the systems that we have to navigate because it's so foreign to them. Well, and this is a good segue to something else that I wanted to ask you about just before we get into the questions, which when I talk about the hostility towards parents generally, I think some of it is that ongoing (laughs) aggregate precarity and anxiety, right? So sometimes people say like, it's so much easier to be a parent today because, you know, we have vaccines, we have all sorts of things that make it so that like child mortality rates are not what they were 100 years ago. But then also there are all of these other contemporary problems that like as a developed nation, we should not have. That's like something that we th- I often think about like one of the you know richest nations in the world, like why do we have these problems every day? So maybe like my question is like, where does this hostility come from? What's the root of it, you think? Um, I, I agree with you that is it, it's a sense of scarcity and it's a sense of I'm working so hard that I can't spare any of what I'm getting because there's not mm-hmm. enough for me. So how how can you try to take away what I've earned for your family. Um, I think that's sort of the root of it. And I think, you know, especially for our generation, which you write about so beautifully and wonderfully, like things are less secure by basically every metric than they were for many of our parents. I mean, just sort of generationally speaking, not in terms of um, individual cases, but, you know, finances are more precarious. It's harder to buy a house. There's more debt. Like all of these things are just facts of the matter. Um, And so it makes sense that it just sort of feels like we're all fighting for scraps and there's not a lot of grace to go around, which is unfortunate. Yeah. In the workplace, in our communities, the way that we talk about each other in the media, on social media, all of these things. And like some of the things that I think are huge stressors for lower income parents would be solved by more money, right? Just like Mm -hmm. that basic social safety net stuff. And then some of the stuff for middle class and more well-off parents would be solved by more community and more reliance on each other. Right. And also those (laughs) expansion of those safety net things like affordable and accessible childcare benefits up and down the the entire income scale. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think everyone is having a really hard time and it's a hard time in different ways. Right. Yep. I think that is (laughs) exactly how it is. So our first question is going to be about explicit norms and expectations in the workplace that make it really hard to parent, and specifically business trips. So let's hear from Maureen. I work in civil engineering as a support staffer. I had infrequent business travel before COVID. 
Now I have a kid and business travel is happening again, and my new department was restructured. My line management scheduled a three-day training in Boston, and I'm in New Jersey, and recently told everyone to start booking accommodations. My husband is a restaurant manager. It now feels impossible for me to travel for work. Who will watch my kid after daycare? Since it's not in my normal job description, how do I handle infrequent requests like this? Does no one else have children in my department? How do people manage? So what I'm hearing here are two different questions. And the first is like the very practical, very immediate need of what am I going to do? Do I tell my boss that I can't do this and does that make me seem like a less competent worker, less reliable in some way? Um, and also, like, how how in the world could I structure this? And then the second question is this overarching question, which is why are workplaces expecting this sort of travel in the first place? Like, what does that indicate about our workplace norms in general? So I want to tackle that second question first. Just why do companies have these norms about you should just be able to travel all the time? Um, I think because they have not thought it through. And usually <laughs> the leaders of the company have not been primary caretakers of children at any point in their career. And if they were, they were high up enough to be able to pay out the wazoo or they had live-in grandparents. Like there was always something that allowed them to work at any time. I find it productive in work situations to approach things like this as if they are just neglectful and not malicious. Because in my own personal life, whenever stuff like this has happened and I just assume malice, then I just get super angry and that's not good for me. (laughs) So it's like, start with like, the intentions are neutral. They just didn't think it through. Um, and that historically, people who have run companies have not been primary caretakers of children, so they don't even think about it. Um, right. And if it is mm-hmm. brought to their attention in a way that it explained that it's better for the business, it's better for you to do your job, um, if you're allowed some more flexibility on sort of these issues, that's always sort of the, the place to start is that they just haven't thought it through. You know, I was thinking about this, um, a friend of mine is doing some political reporting right now. And she's like, I can always tell if the comms team are younger and don't have kids yet because they just think that like you can tell email someone in the morning or text them in the morning and then they can come to an event no matter what, like that afternoon. Just drop everything. Right? <laughs> Especially like across the state. And my friend's like, I have to get childcare and also dog care. But like there are plans that need to be made for my life that if you are a younger person, maybe, this isn't always true, but oftentimes you have not yet become empathetic towards those needs. And all you need, though, is one person saying really kindly, like, it would be really helpful for me if you give me more than one day's notice, right? Making that explicit. And I think that, like, yes, in an ideal world, everyone would be, like, thinking about everyone else's scenarios. And that comes to child care and elder care and do you have a, a, a child who needs more, like a special needs child or a high needs child or a medically complicated child? Like there's so many different things, situations that people could uh, need more notice about, <laughs> but that's not our, our world. And I think sometimes we still have to do that educating ourselves, even though it feels really annoying. Yeah, absolutely. And she did 
um, have one question in there that I thought was very insightful. And Mm. does no one else who works here have kids? And I think one of the most important things that you can do is find out who else does have kids. And they can be not only your allies just like to vent, but also in terms of asking for things as a group so it doesn't seem like a special privilege. I mean, in the best case scenario, you have a union like I do, which like I've, this is the first time I've ever been in a union. Love it. So happy. Feel so much safer. (laughs) But most, unfortunately in this country, that is unusual. So, but, you know, if you can point things out with a group and show that it is beneficial to several employees, that is always incredibly helpful. And actually, um, earlier in my career, one of the mistakes that I made was um, that job that I talked about that I first took when I got pregnant, I realized after the fact that there were no mothers in basically any positions of power at Mm. that time. And so that's just a little bit of advice in terms of you're looking for a new job. Obviously you can't make that change if you're in a current Mm -hmm. job where that's, but like do a little low key poking around. And if there are no parents who are very involved in upper echelons, I would side eye that. Don't necessarily say like, don't take that job, but like, you know, ask around. Yeah, no, this is one of the things that I always think about in terms of like, attracting and retaining a truly diverse workplace. And I mean diversity in terms of race and diversity in terms of gender, diversity in terms of parents and non-parents, is that you have to have people operating from all of those different perspectives, not just at your company, but in decision-making places within that company. Exactly. Right? So we we kind of address some of the the more practical things that this person could do to to look for other parents but like what what do you think she should do like in the immediate term in the like immediate term what's a way she could approach I yeah. mean you know I think hopefully she has a good relationship with her boss like that's yeah. that's ideally she has a good enough relationship with her boss that she can just level with them and be like look I really want to attend this meeting it seems really important I just cannot make it work with my child and invite them into the, like, say, like, I've thought of X, Y, and Z ways to solve this problem. I cannot solve this problem on my own. I would like to, if, is there a way the company can help me solve this problem? Um, So treat it as like, if this is an essential part of her job, they need to help her solve it. Um, Because this is, as she has said, above her job description, not, you know, so there may be ways that like, can she bring the kid with her? Like, which also, again, is terrible. I don't ever want to give my bring my children on a business trip. It is distracting and terrible. I don't, like, <laughs> recommend it. But, like, this is not a problem where there is going to be compromise. It's like there's right. a kid who needs to be taken care of. When I talk to companies that are trying to figure out how do we go to hybrid situations or how do we go to almost fully remote situations, but then also ask that our employees come back to the office every quarter, right? For team building, you know, all of the different things like the the cultural checking in. And one thing I say that is that unless you want to make your company a place where you can't have any single parents, a place where you can't have or that you are really discouraging people who are primary caregivers from from being part of that organization, you have to think about okay, when are we going to schedule these? How are we either going to help supplement 
childcare or create solutions where there will be childcare on site, depending on like the amount of travel that's necessary for someone to get there. So like I have heard of people who like they do these sorts of mass, you know, reskilling, retraining things like they, you know, it's at a, a Marriott in Dallas or whatever. And people are coming in from a couple hours away and they do, they say like, we're going to do this in the summer because that's a time when it's easier for kids to not be in school. Right. And if you want to bring your kid with you on this, (laughs) on this trip, then there will be, you know, we will have skilled caregivers there to, to offer, offer care while you do this. And if you can't do that, then, and which is what I think a lot of companies say, like, oh, that's too big of an expense, then you are losing those employees. Yeah. You are saying, we want <laughs> we want our workforce to look like what it looked like in 1950. Yep. I, I think this is a conversation that she needs to have sooner rather than later with, mm-hmm. her, with management, just because it's like, if this is going to keep coming up, this is not a role for her. Like this, yeah. I, I mean, I, that's hard to say. It's like, obviously you can't just like leave your job in a snap, find a new job. But like, you know, this wasn't the responsibility before. It doesn't work with her life. Um, yep. And that's, got, that's something that's got to be figured out. Our second question is from Sarah, who got what she needed from her employer, but only at the 11th hour. I'm a mom of two kids under four. I have a hybrid work schedule, but I had to put my two weeks notice in to get it. When we came back to the office full-time post-COVID, the message for anyone who wanted to keep working from home was, if you don't like coming into the office, you can go work somewhere else. So that's exactly what I did. After I put in my notice, my boss and their boss sat me down, told me they couldn't afford to lose me, and they were confident I had demonstrated during COVID that I could successfully do my job from home. Flexibility was my sole reason for leaving, so once I had it, I stayed. I work from home pretty seamlessly, and I'm now able to manage my kids' schedules and my workload so much easier than before. What I don't understand is, one, why did it come to me literally quitting my job for my employer to give me the flexibility that I needed? And two, why does it still feel like if I need to quote-unquote take time away from work for my kids that I'm a less-than employee? There seems to be a standard belief that if you're not in the office, you're not working or that you need to be at your computer during a specific set of hours to get your work done. I don't understand why it's still frowned upon to schedule a 2 p.m. appointment or to log off at 4 if all pressing matters are handled and my job is getting done. Even with the flexibility to work from home, I still feel tied to the 8 to 5 business day. So we actually got several questions like this, and they all boil down to something that is basically like... Why can't I be in charge of when I do my job and when I take care of my kids? Because I'm an adult and really good at my job and can figure this stuff out. And I think Sarah's situation is the kind of thing that businesses should be doing for their employees. And this is the sort of thing that I talk about advocating for in terms of healthy flex and blah, blah, blah. But very much the reality that many companies are not adopting these policies and are adopting the come back into the office. And if you don't like it, you can quit. So I guess my question to you, Jess, is why is it so hard for these companies to get on board with what someone like Sarah is asking for without her threading quitting? I mean, a lot of it is most of these folks are not internet natives. None of these people have made friends over AIM. Like they, their idea <laughs> of creating a culture and creating yep. relationships is just 
pre-virtual. They don't. I mean, there's just a complete lack of understanding and they, and a lack of ability to look outside themselves and think, oh, maybe other people can work efficiently and well in a way that I couldn't work efficiently and well. So they think I couldn't do this. So clearly my employees can't. And some of it certainly is a control thing. They think if they can't see you, they have bad ideas about what you might be doing with your time despite clear evidence that people have been highly productive working from home. I mean, yeah. you know the, the, that research as well as anybody. There's n- there was no dip in productivity among yeah. folks who you know went fully remote during the pandemic. I mean, in fact, people work more uh, and longer hours, especially when you don't have that commute. There's more, I mean, most people are commuting at least, what is it, like half an hour? Um, you're wasting an hour of your day to yep. sit in an office. And for many folks, not just parents, that makes no sense <laughs> for, their, for their quality of life and for, you know, having any. So I think it's inertia. It's an idea. It's the, the people in charge have never done it, so they don't think it's possible. Um, and norms in all sorts of spheres of life are incredibly hard to change. I mean, this week I was working on a newsletter about why the school year is the way that it is. Yeah. And a lot of it is just because we set in place the idea that summer, there is no school during summer and that's it. And that is in yeah. people's heads. And then yep. some very powerful industries, uh, the tourism industry and the amusement park lobby in some yep. states have pushed for laws that make sure that school does not start until the end of August or early September because they are worried about losing money. It's norms, it's money, it's all of these different things. So I think that's why I, I am optimistic, actually, that this is something that really is going to change in the next 10 to 20 years. I am too. There are a handful of industries that have just been very, very slow to want to do any sort of change in these sorts of realms, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them are companies that are headquartered in the center of the country and that I'm not making a judgment call there. I'm just talking about what the norms at those organizations are. And I do think that even they will get on board because they're going to lose talent. They're going to lose people like Sarah Mm -hmm. who say, what I do, I'm very good at my job, but what my skills are transferable. And I'm going to go work for someplace that does have flex. And I, you know, the, the stats bear this out. Slack's Future Forum is one of the places where I go for this sort of data and the stats on like the parents who would look for a new job if Flex was totally taken from them. It's so high. Mm-hmm. And even even with the, the economic downturn and the tightening of the labor market, like people just do not want to go back. And I think some of that has to do with how long people had the privilege of Flex. Like if this had been four weeks, if it had been even if it had been like four four months. But once something becomes as normalized as it has, you can't take that away and say like, oh, yeah, well, you know, that was a that was a gift that we gave you almost because of that. Like a parent, especially people I've talked to have said like I'm the the franticness with which we got out of the house every morning. Right. Like to to get everyone to leave, to do like drop offs at two places and then for the parent to get on the subway and go into work and then trying to leave work at the precise time to get home to relieve whatever caregiver they had done. Like that is a mad dash that no one wants to return to. So if they can possibly avoid it, they're going to. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and there are jobs and projects that require you to be someplace in person and no shade on that. Um, But I find often that many companies that are now insisting 
people come back to the office for some amorphous cultural reason um, have absolutely nothing to back that up. Like nothing in terms of productivity, in terms of statistics. Like there's no there there. And I think employees are pretty clear about that. So I'm trying to think like how can we help this person feel like they are not tied to this idea of office hours? So like what other conversations can she have or even tricks since it's clear that right now this company is not interested in a more company-wide systemic change, that this is an allowance that is being given to her, which Mm -hmm. is always precarious because that means that it can be very easily taken away because it's not codified in any way. But I think that there are things that she can do to make them feel like she is working even when she's not working. Do you know what I mean? I'm I'm just trying to figure out how she can manage up. Absolutely. Um, So one trick that I've heard about it's a lot of like calendar jujitsu, depending yeah. on how much people are looking at your Microsoft or Google calendars, but like sort of ostentatiously putting <laughs> things on the calendar that maybe are not the full truth, but will make it appear that you are working the standard office hours. Um, that's one trick that I've heard a lot of parents employ if it is frowned upon or seen that like, oh, you know, going to my kid's practice at, you know, 4 p.m. on Thursdays is, you know, going to make me seem less committed. Maybe there's just a super important meeting or work that you can put on your calendar that you're doing at that point that you actually do at 7 p.m. that night or whenever is better for you. So totally. We are taping this at a moment when the this discourse around quiet quitting is still very much in the air. And what we're talking about here isn't even quiet quitting. It's just about like, doing your work when you want to do your work and still doing your work really well, right? Like this isn't about shirking responsibility. It isn't about what, like one CEO told me one time that if someone got all their work done for a given day in six hours, but they were expected to work an eight hour workday. And if they didn't sit in their chairs and just like be there, that they would be committing wage theft (laughs) just by... (laughs) Right. Because they weren't they weren't working during that time. And I think one of the things that we have to shift our understanding of is like different tasks take different times for different people. And if someone is salaried and they're getting the same amount of work done on their own schedule as they would have or if they're even getting more work done on their own schedule than they would have working in eight to five, then why not let them? But also, how do we convince those those higher ups that, that that's the case? Maybe it involves a little bit of magic tricking. I think it involves a little bit of magic tricking. I think it involves, unfortunate. I mean, we have these beautiful portable devices in our hands <laughs> that allow people to have no idea where we are physically in space at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't know why anyone keeps sent from my iPhone on their iPhone. <laughs> I have I took that off immediately. Nobody needs to know Same. where I am. Nobody needs to know Same. that I well, like where I am in space. I am responding to your email and that is the output. That's the output yeah. that you want. You don't I you don't need to know where I am. <laughs> and yeah. I've always felt that way since the invention of the iPhone. Um yeah. as long as I've been employed. So like, you know, nobody needs to they don't need to know where you are. They just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could like 
you know, schedule send a reply to go like two hours after the time that you would usually send it. So like if you were you completed the email at 2 p.m., have it send at 4 p.m. Yep. This is the opposite of all advice that I give to people who actually have flex in their workplace. Like for those people, I'm always like, figure out how to make boundaries between like work and the rest of your life. Like, you know, be have a little bit more hygiene with that slipperiness that sometimes comes with remote and portable work. Whereas this person, we're basically saying like, figure out how to LARP your job, how to live action role play your job yeah. a little bit more <laughs> so that your bosses won't be so weird about this. In an ideal world, obviously, this person would be able to change her office culture and she would yep. be able to like get up yep. on the net desk network style and say like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. We need X, Y, and Z for this company. It is always left to the folks who will be most easily and first punished to do that work, to change yep. the culture. Mm-hmm. And I've just, um, in my old age, seen so many people who have tried to change cultures get fed up and quit, basically, or just yep. get sort of pushed aside and not allowed to reach their full potential um, at a company or in a job. And so, yep. listen... We all we need those reformers. Companies will never change. But especially if you have little kids and you need a job to survive, like it's not always the right time to stick your neck out. Right. And maybe in five years, that's the time when you get on a committee that advocates for this change for people who want it. Like maybe this is a long term plan for this very inflexible company is like when you accumulate more power, you use that power so that other people can have the same privileges that you had. So our advice for Sarah boils down to, uh, one, see if she can communicate with her bosses in a way that, like, suggests that, like, here's all the work that I'm doing. Like, basically showing that productivity if she wants to. Like, that's the beginning of the conversation. But if she's tired of advocating for this sort of thing, there are workarounds that create a sleight of hand that she is working at these times that other people think she should be working at. But then the third is really that, like, she is not singularly responsible for changing this pretty old school culture of her company. She can be the beginning of this change, but especially if she has younger kids, if she's exhausted, if it just feels like it's very ossified, that change can come. But she does not have to be wholly responsible for it herself. So our last question, I think it is perfect for you, but it is also going to frustrate you, I think. Or maybe just like throw something at the wall. I don't know. The topic always makes me want to throw things. But it might also give us an opportunity to talk about some brighter things to do with the future. This is from someone named Chelsea, and our producer Melody is going to read it. Is anything concrete developing for affordable access to reliable childcare? I'm a single parent and have been on a waiting list for my daughter's after-school program for over a year. Babysitters are charging $25 an hour for care in my city, and my work requires on-site hours. This has impacted my progress at work, my income, and added another layer of stress. How are other working parents managing? So, Jess, what good news do you have for Chelsea? Well, I feel like just replying to the question, how are other parents managing with the 
gif from Dorinda from Real Housewives of New York saying, <laughs> not well, bitch. Like, we're not, man- it's like not, yeah. no one is managing this well. So you are yeah. really not alone. It is expensive. It is inaccessible. Um, in December, I wrote a story that I think was titled, Parents are back to work, but childcare resources are quote unquote laughable. Yep. Um, childcare was already a broken system and not reliable and very expensive before uh, COVID hit, and now it is worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just full stop the truth. So many, 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 many parents are struggling to make this work. So that's just the first part that you're not alone. Yeah. In terms of systemic change, there are a lot of amazing activists who are working so hard, on, especially on the state level. Um, I think, as we know, the federal government is not working great right now um, in a lot of ways. I mean, there have been a couple bright lights recently, but not around childcare. Um, and so there was a lot of money pumped into state governments during COVID in a good way. And so some of them, particularly I've heard of New Mexico, the city of Washington, D.C., Washington State, where things like universal preschool, better paid childcare workers, like there are so many people who care about this issue so much and are working so hard to make these systemic changes happen. Um, That said, like in the near term, I wish I could get you off that wait list tomorrow, but I, I don't know that the ambulance is coming in the very near term for folks um, living through this right now. And I just wanted to also say that I'm so sorry that this is happening for you. It's so stressful um, and it just shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. So I just, my heart really goes out to this listener because it's, it's terrible. It's the worst feeling because um, you need to provide for your kids and you need to have a safe place for them to be and mm-hmm. not being able to do that is just, it stinks. So I feel really, you know, it's, it's a not fun place to be in. You know, one of the things that I found when I was reporting about basically just how broken the childcare system was and is, is that there's a real amnesia that happens oftentimes with parents. Like this is the reason why there hasn't been as much activism as one might expect, given that so many people are parents in this country, is that once you get through it, you're exhausted Mm -hmm. and you're angry in part because you've spent so much money but you you start to focus on other things instead of thinking, how can I build this system so that no one else has to go through what I went through? And I understand that, absolutely. But I think it also, we see it a little bit in terms of what happens with after school and before school care, because it seems like people are really, really struggling, absolutely struggling with care for, I mean, infant care is an incredible mess, affordable infant care. Like, And if you don't have leave, just what are you going to do? But also with, you know, pre-K, all that sort of thing, like that's where there's a lot of energy focused. When that interstitial care, when the kids are done with school, but you're not done with work, and like, what do you do for those hours? When we were kids, in a lot of places, you went home alone, or you had a family member who was there, And our civilization is still really organized around the idea that every family has someone who is in the home. Mm -hmm. And so those those parents, like even our previous listener who can be home when her kids are done, in some ways that 
makes it so that there's less pressure for the change that needs to happen for people who can't be home. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But that's like the ultimate problem is that everyone is figuring out their own individual solutions because they have to. There is, you know, your kids have to go somewhere that you feel they are safe. And so I don't think that it's a lack of desire to make a more systemic change. It's that in the near term, it's not something you can neglect to deal with. Yes, 100%. For yourself. Yes. Like you need the childcare so that you can even advocate for the change that would be systemic in the future. Yeah, no, and I I don't want to mistake that I'm saying that like people – don't care about this. It's more no, that they they exhaust their their body battery again of caring by looking for all of the care that then there's just so little left to to advocate for the the longer term changes. Yeah, and I think this would be such a societal change that it's like I don't even know how you would begin to make it happen, but Americans work more hours than people in many developed countries do. Yeah. And I I can speak for myself and say that like my ideal scenario, if I could choose, if there were no societal pressures, if there were no set work hours, I would like to work what would be thought of as three-quarter time Yep, and actually spend more time with my children. Those situations are almost impossible to come by yep. without taking such a financial hit that Um, you know, that wouldn't work for most families that need the income. I personally, I'm like, I don't want to be a top manager anywhere ever. I would Mm -hmm. like to work less. I would like to spend more, more time with my family and less stressed time with my family where I'm thinking about 17 other things and I can't be present because I'm worried about, you know, getting something else done. And that's not, again, it's not a childcare solution. Yeah. But <laughs> no, and that that the fact that in many different industries there only is full time or no time. Yeah. is part of what I think is forcing some mothers to drop out of the workforce right now. Right, but right? I mean in the case of this questioner, if Yeah. there there might be enough childcare to go around with our current system if we could have other release valves. Because right now, the situation that it is, it's like we need a complete overhaul of the childcare system to even have enough supply for the demand that exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to even have enough teachers who are willing to do this work. Who exactly. many Like people want to do this work. It's just that it pays in many states poverty wages. Yep. It's <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is just like every time you try to find a solution for a problem, it creates another problem. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that any sort of suggestion I give is just going to sound so basic and stupid. And I'm sure this person has already exhausted every potential lead in her community. So like, I would say, especially during the pandemic, um, I know a lot of folks who did sort of co-op style childcare where, you know, when it was remote school every day. And so all the kids would just be at one house. Yeah for one day a week. So it was less of a burden for everyone. But that one day was so horrible (laughs) that I'm like, I couldn't do it. But that's like the only, if there's no family around to help, I'm like, is there some sort of cooperative solution? Right. Because I'm sure that this listener is not the only person who is waitlisted. Yeah, yeah. And if there's, whether it's a parent listserv or a community group, like on Facebook or on whatever, like, 
there are other people that you could do a, essentially like I don't think you'd call it a nanny share. You'd call it a babysitter share. Yeah. That's for older kids. A babysitter taking care of like four infants is very different than a babysitter watching over four nine year olds. Totally. And yeah. if you have a local college, that is usually a really great source of potential babysitters. Um, and again, you can share the cost. If they're older kids, it's just like not that hard to take them to the park and, and watch all of them for, you know, a couple hours every day. Um, you know, again, these things are hard to find. There's sweat equity in finding them. Mm-hmm. And it stinks, um, but that's the only sort of solution that I can think of that she maybe hasn't already done, but maybe she already has tried it. Well, and I, you know, her question, the way that it was posed really highlights to me the fact that when you don't have this system in place, this infrastructure, right, childcare as infrastructure, as Elizabeth Warren and many others put it, then every other part of our infrastructure suffers. Right. Like it is it is a structural component of a functioning society to have some measure of care. That doesn't mean that every single mother needs to be working or every single parent needs to be working. But there needs to be some measure of care that people can use that's affordable and accessible. And if you don't have it, then people aren't as good at their jobs. They aren't as good at being a member of their community. There's just all sorts of things that begin to falter as well. So true. (laughs) So that was all that's not really good news. But I'm trying to think something from recent reporting, recent stories that like really makes you feel like, oh, things might change in this realm. We might we might be coming up on something that's going to make parenting easier moving forward. Um. <laughs> it could even be a gadget. It can be an app. It can be. The new season of Bluey, right? Mm, Yeah. So what I would say (laughs) is that I do think more people are just calling bullshit on the entire way that we are supposed to survive in this current system of of demands on our time and on our souls and on our children and trying to find a way forward that might be very radical or it might be a little incremental, but sort of just seeing through a lot of the bullshit for what it is. Yeah. Um, and so I do think more, more and more people are sort of questioning um, a lot of the expectations that are put on parents and trying to find new ways of doing things. I think like part of the bullshit that they're calling is just this whole like individualist family narrative of self-sufficiency. Right? Like you just can't do it by yourself. No. For me personally, and we're obviously very lucky to have this, we live near my parents. And I don't think I we would have been able to have a second kid if we didn't live near family. And just as a, you know, knowing in the back of my head that that's a, an emergency stopgap um, for us has been just immeasurably satisfying and I think during the pandemic a lot of folks moved to be closer to family and I and that I wouldn't say that gives me hope but I do think that that's going to make life richer and easier for a lot of families just your kids having relationships with other trusted adults Mm -hmm. um, makes their lives so much richer and better I mean it's suffocating to have just you know the nuclear family 
to rely on at all yeah. times. Yeah, it's really um, boring. <laughs> for everybody, yeah. Yeah, I really encourage other people who don't have kids or do have kids to become that person in other kids' lives too because yeah. no matter what age you are, if you're older, if you're younger, the parents of those children will be grateful for you in many different ways. But also it's really wonderful to have a relationship with a kid that's like that. It's just yeah. fun. We have one of our best friends lives in the apartment across the street from us. And um, she loves my kid. She comes over with her dogs. They watch movies together. Like it's the sweetest, most fun. Um, she tells them that they they can't wrestle because she's not that kind of babysitter. Like, just don't, like, you can't hurt yourselves when I'm here. Like, (laughs) you have to be cool. Just be cool. And they're like, okay, we got it. (laughs) And they do it. They would never, they never do that for me. But they have so much fun with her. And it's such a fruitful relationship for everybody. So, yeah. I mean, I think more people are, are certainly realizing the value of that. And that's excellent. I am so grateful that you were willing to come and address these questions with me today because you have that perfect mix of like deep knowledge of policy and also having spoken to hundreds and hundreds of parents about everything that's going on over the last few years. But then also you just have a really empathetic heart. And I think that that's a great quality to have and an advice giver. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. That really, that's so sweet. That really touched, that really touched me. Um, I hope my advice was not too sassy, telling people just to lie to their employers. (laughs) And just full disclosure, I would never lie to my current employer about anything. Only the 100% truth ever. So, you know. Every email is sent from your computer. From my computer. I never leave my desk. I was so glad to talk to Jessica Gross for this episode, and thanks so much to those of you who submitted questions for us. I genuinely hope your lives get easier soon. And thanks to you for listening to Work Appropriate. If you've got a workplace quandary you want help figuring out, get in touch. You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send a voice memo with your questions to workappropriate at crooked.com. Some of the episodes we're working on involve what to do when the work you love is sucking your soul, or how to process traumatic things that happen to you against the backdrop of work, and then all things union and labor and and organizing. We'd love to hear from you. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz. And a special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismar. You can follow me on Twitter at Anne Helen or on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson. You can sign up for my newsletter at annhelen.substack.com. Meet me back here next week as we try to untangle all of your shitty office culture questions with someone who works at a place that seems to actually have figured out how to have healthy workplace culture. You just heard one of the first episodes of Work Appropriate. If you want to hear more, subscribe now to Work Appropriate wherever you get your podcasts. You can host the best backyard barbecue. 
when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 